Okay, good. As I was saying, pay no attention. <laughs> There's plenty else got your attention right now. Pay no attention to the picture behind me on the screen. It is still there, yes. We'll get there in just a moment. Uh, many thanks, many, many thanks to uh, Jeremy and Joy, Mark and Shannon for being with us this Lord's Day. Uh, my heart's been encouraged. Uh, they have pointed us heavenward. They have pointed us Christward. And they have indeed pointed us to the gospel. The gospel is indeed uh, God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. And it falls upon me now to articulate that gospel. Falls upon me now to proclaim that gospel from God's word. And then we are going to culminate, climax our worship today by participating in a visible, tangible picture of this gospel, uh, the Lord's Supper. The theme, it's still sounding strange to me. Is it sounding strange to anyone else? Do we need to go with the pulpit mic? Let's make a call. So we're going with the pulpit mic. All right, there we go. No need for that anymore. That can go away. There we are. Uh, my, my theme, my goal this morning, I can sum it up basically in, in one statement. I didn't have this statement before we sang that last, uh, that last song, but how did it go? What was that, that, one, th that one line? Uh, Christ has hushed. The law's loud thunder. Did you hear it when we sang it? Christ has hushed the law's loud thunder. And that, above all else, is what I want us to grasp today. It is what I want us to hear out of God's word. It is what I pray, uh, by the Spirit's help, we will take to heart. I'm inviting you to turn to Romans chapter 7. And as you turn there, that's our main text. I'm going to read to you out of Exodus 20. No need to go there with me. I want you to find Romans 7. That's where we're going to end up, our main order of business. But I want to read well-known verses out of Exodus 20 and ask you, encourage you to listen to these verses uh, in preparation for what we are going to hear Paul say out of Romans chapter 7. So hear this. God spoke all these words, saying, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife 
or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Did you get all that? Known, of course, as the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. With those commandments ringing in our ears, hear now what Paul has to say in Romans chapter 7, beginning in the seventh verse. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity, through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now to the picture behind me. It's a little fuzzy. You're halfway back in the auditorium to the back. You may be squinting, wondering exactly, exactly what's going on there. This is a scene from that book I have quoted from I don't know how many times over the past six years, The Pilgrim's Progress. This is a particular scene I have referred to here in worship as I have preached. I've lost track how many times I've referred to it, but here it is again. Here I go one more time, indulge me. In the Pilgrim's Progress, in this scene, we are in a house called the House of Interpreter, and we are in a room, and what is unique to this room is the following. It is filled with dust, the floor, in this room, completely covered with dirt, completely covered with dust. There are two men standing over to this side of the picture in the room. Far left is Pilgrim, is Christian. You can just make it out, the burden on his back. This is a man under the conviction of sin. This is a man who has felt the full terror of the law. This is a man who knows all is not well with his soul. He is in the house of interpreter. He is standing beside, yes, the interpreter. And the interpreter is explaining to him what is happening, what is transpiring in the room. A man enters. And this man is holding a broom. And this man begins to sweep frantically the dust in this room. What is the result? All he manages to do is create this cloud enormous cloud of dust. And the people, they begin to choke on it. Dry dust, dry dirt. He starts sweeping it. All the energy he can put into it with this broom. And all he accomplishes is to create this cloud. There's someone else, a fourth individual. A woman enters. What is she holding? A basin of water. What does she do? She begins to sprinkle the water around the room. What does the water do? 
It takes that dust back to the ground. It dampens the dust. And in that state, she is then able to do what? Dust and clean the room. What is the point? Pilgrim, he has a sort of perplexed look on his face there, doesn't he? Isn't he sort of grabbing his chin? What's this all about? An interpreter is pointing and he's explaining. And here, here, here is what Pilgrim is supposed to get. The first thing he is supposed to understand is this. The man with the broom is not the problem. The man with the broom is not the problem. What's the problem? The dust. The floor is laden, covered with dust, dirt, grime. That's the problem. The man with the broom is not the cause of the problem, but he ends up pointing to the problem, bringing it to the fore, making it evident to everyone. The second thing he wants Pilgrim to understand is this. The man with the broom is not the solution. It is the woman with the basin of water. What's the point? Two-fold point that interpreter wants Christian to get and that we must get in the light of what Paul has expressed in this passage. Yes, Romans chapter 7 is the following. The law is not your problem. The law is not the problem. The law points to the problem. The second thing he wants us to get is this. The law is not the solution, but the law prepares for the solution. That is Paul's message in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. He begins with a question. What then shall we say? In other words, what are we supposed to conclude? That the law is sin. That the law is bad. That the law is our problem. Is that what we are supposed to conclude? Well, why does he ask that question here? Why does he raise it now? Turn with me. Go all the way back to chapter 3, verse 20. This is a question that has been lurking in the minds of his readers. Paul has uttered a number of phrases, and he knows that the culminating effect of these phrases will be confusion in the minds of his audience because they are going to misinterpret what he is saying. And so all the way back in chapter 3, at the end of verse 20, what does he declare? Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Into chapter 4, verse 15, right at the start, what does he say? The law brings wrath. Into chapter 5, verse 20, what does he say there? Look closely at his expression at the outset of the verse. The law came in to increase the trespass. Now what does he say in chapter 6, verse 14, right at the end? You are not under law. He says something similar as we move into chapter 7, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. And then he caps it all off in verse 6. We are released from the law. So what does the law bring? Oh, it brings the knowledge of sin. 
The law aggravates sin. The law leads to the wrath of God. The law as Christians is something you're no longer under. The law is to be viewed as something we needed to be released from. Well, Paul, from all this negativity, what are we supposed to make of the law? What conclusion should we make? What should, what, how should we think? What then shall we say? That the law, well, it is sin. It's bad. It is our problem. What is Paul's answer? Exclamation. By no means. No, you misunderstood. The law is not the problem. The law points us to the problem. We do not need to be freed from the law because of the law. We need to be freed from the law because of our Sin. The law aggravates it. The law stirs it up. The law perplexes it. But in so doing, the law shows us exactly what our problem is, where it lies. And in the remainder of this section, Paul explains it. And he says, look, well, no, the law isn't sinful. The law isn't our problem. He's actually going to conclude in verse 12, the law is holy. And the commandment. It is holy and righteous and good. Why? He gives us three principal reasons in the intervening verses. The first is this. The law defines sin. Seventh verse. What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. I admit it. That's a little confusing at first glance. Look at that statement in the middle of the verse. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known known sin. Is Paul saying that apart from that written code of law, we read portion of it out of Exodus 20, that apart from that law, he, he, he would have had absolutely no awareness of his sin? That isn't what he's saying. That can't be what he's saying. You go back to the second chapter and you look at the 15th verse. There Paul makes it clear that each of us actually has what written on the heart? The law. God himself has written the law upon our hearts. Meaning what? That each of us possesses an innate, inherent knowledge of the law without ever seeing it in written form, without that declaration and revelation of the law as given to Israel, without that, just lay that aside. The law is still written on the hearts, and each of us knows it's wrong to murder. We don't need anybody to tell us that. Each of us knows it's wrong to commit adultery. Each of us knows that there are certain actions, certain deeds which are bad, sinful, wrong, whatever word you want to use to describe it. We know that inherently. And so Paul can't be saying that he would have had absolutely no knowledge of what sin was unless the law had come to him in written form. That can't be his point. So what is his point? His point is simply this, that when the law came to him, the written law, here is the function it served. A far greater function than that which was written inwardly. That the law showed him or provided to him a full definition of his sin. 
and in particular, the Tenth Commandment. Why? For the following reason. We can interpret the commandments externally and superficially until we reach the tenth. Did you get me? We can interpret the commandments externally and superficially until we get to the tenth. Why? What does the tenth commandment do? It takes us into the realm of the heart. And it shows us what? That the real issue lies where? In the human heart. It shows us that our fundamental problem isn't merely our external behavior, conduct. Far deeper, it is in a sinful heart. Shouldn't surprise us. The Lord Jesus takes us down that road, doesn't he, in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, what? You shall not murder. It's a law. It's a commandment. That's fine. External. I've never done that. What does the Lord Jesus say? No, 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 it's much deeper. You've misunderstood. You don't have a full definition of sin. I'm telling you that if you're angry with your brother, you're guilty of committing murder. You see, that external action comes from somewhere. There is something that gives rise to it. There is something that births it internally. You have heard that it was said you should not commit adultery. Yes, that is sin. Yes, that is grievous. Yes, that is terrible. But I'm telling you, anybody who looks at someone of the opposite sex and burns in desire, lust, well, they have already committed adultery in their heart. You see, the law requires much more of us than simple external conformity. Oh, the law goes right to the heart. You shall not covet. Paul, as he rhymed off the first nine commandments, he felt pretty good about himself. Why? Because he could keep it all at arm's length. He could keep it all on that superficial level. But when the Tenth Commandment came alive, you shall not covet. There he had a far clearer definition of the very nature of sin as provided by the law. The second reason builds on it. Not only does the law define sin, but the law reveals sin. And so having defined it for us that it's really a heart issue, it really has to do with self-love. It really has to do with self-worship. It really has to do with self-centeredness, self-preoccupation. Having defined the nature, the very essence of sin, the law now shows us what we are. That's what Paul says in the 8th verse. But sin, my sinful self, what I am by nature, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. He's thinking in particular of the 10th, you shall not covet. What was the result produced in me? All kinds of covetousness. Don't misunderstand what he was saying. The covetousness was already there. What did the commandment do? His own sinfulness through that commandment began to show him the extent of his covetousness. And look at how he caps it off at the end of the 8th verse. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. He is not saying that sin is inactive apart from the law. A sin is very active. Apart from the law. Someone who has never heard of the Ten Commandments. A sin is as active in that individual as someone who has heard the Ten Commandments. That's not his point. He's not saying, look, sin is dormant, just, just asleep and doesn't do anything, inactive, until the law comes along and wakens it. No, he's describing his own experience. That is, his own awareness of his sin. 
His own awareness of his covetousness. His own awareness of what he is internally. That until the Spirit of God brought the law home to bear upon his mind and upon his heart, he, that, that sin was kind of dead. He, he, he was unconscious of his own sinfulness. He was unaware of the extent of his sinfulness, the depth of his sinfulness. But when confronted with that particular commandment, and as sin is more clearly defined in his mind, as in the first instance, a manifestation of a depraved heart, oh, the law began to show Paul exactly who was. The law forced him to look into a mirror. And prior to this, he had thought all was well with his soul. But now his covetousness was made, laid bare before him. That which had been asleep now came to life. His own awareness of his sin in God's sight. But there's a third reason. Not only does the law define sin. Not only does it reveal sin. But the law condemns sin. The ninth verse, I, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, my awareness of it, and I died. He's speaking of life and death in relative terms. And he is saying, look, it's very biographical. He's saying, look, there was a time in my life as I look back, you know, sort of there is this before and after experience. And as I look back to that time before the Lord saved me, that Damascus Road experience, there was a time when I was alive. Uh, he's not talking of spiritual life. What's he talking about? He's talking about his assessment of himself. There was a time when I was alive. I was just going through life kicking my heels. I thought everything was great. God and me, were buddies. Everything's fantastic. God's on my side. I'm keeping the law, I'm obeying the law, I'm being trained as a Pharisee, I'm actually persecuting those who oppose the religion practiced by our forefathers. Everything's good with me. As to the law, I am righteous. I am blameless. He was alive. But that law came home, the Tenth Commandment in particular, defining the very nature of sin. Having defined the very nature of sin, revealing it to Paul and forcing him to come to grips with exactly what and who he is in God's sight. And having done so, condemning him. At that point, I died. I realized all is not well with the soul. I realized my relationship with God is not fine. I've realized that there are problems here that run deep. And on top of that, it gets worse. The 10th verse, the very commandment. And so these commandments, even that 10th commandment, that promised life, proved to be death to me for sin. That is my sinfulness, which I now see. Seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me. My own sin deceived me. Because you see, when I first saw that law and I first saw those commandments, you know what my sin deceived me into thinking? It deceived me into thinking, here's something I can do. It deceived me into thinking, here is something God requires of me, and I must do my best to obey it. It deceived me into thinking, here is the standard, and by my own effort, 
by my, by my own effort, by me applying myself, I can do this, I can obey that. And the harder I tried, you know what I discovered? The farther I am away from the law, the more I gave myself to it. You know what I discovered? The farther I am away from God, and it deceived me and deceived me, thereby killing me. Meaning what? Bringing me to an end of myself. Oh, my friends, you can almost put words in his mouth. My friends, I want you to understand this. What then shall we say, the law? Is it sin? I know I've said some things about the law, and that's how you're going to interpret it. No, 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 no. It is not sin. It is not sinful. It is not evil. It is not bad. It is not the problem. Understand me. It defines sin for us, showing us exactly what plagues us. It reveals sin to us, forcing us to look at it and reckoning with it in our own hearts. And then it kills us, bringing us to an absolute end of ourselves, whereby we recognize we are condemned in God's sight. And what is his conclusion? I know it seems absurd, but it is beautiful. Twelfth verse. So, law is holy. And the commandment, that tenth one in particular, oh, it is holy and righteous, and good. Why? Put it in the context of the picture behind me. I am absolutely certain John Bunyan had these verses in mind when he wrote this portion of the Pilgrim's Program. I think this must have been the text he was meditating upon. But in this room, the room is the human heart. And this room is laden with dust, pointing to our Sinfulness. The man with the broom is not the problem. The man with the broom points to the problem. It is the law. The man with the broom is not the solution. The man with the broom prepares for the solution. The woman with water representing the gospel. Work through both of those with me. The law isn't the problem but points to the problem. By way of another word picture, you imagine I have up here a glass of water, and this glass of water uh, contains germs, but all of the germs have collected, congregated at the bottom of that glass. And so from your perspective, where you're sitting, all you can see is a clear, apparently clean glass of water. I take a spoon, I dip this spoon in the glass and I begin to stir it up. What happens? The germs that are lying there on the bottom, they begin to rise to the surface. And all of a sudden, they begin to cloud the water and they become readily apparent. Here's the question. Is the problem the spoon? The problem is not the spoon. The problem is that there are germs in the water. All the spoon does is stir it up. That's what the law does. The law is not the problem. It points to the problem. Therefore, it is holy and righteous and good. It defines for us the very nature of sin, whereby we move from the deed to the desire. 
We move from the external to the internal. We move from the actions to the impulses of our very hearts. And we realize that residing within us is enmity toward God, whereby we are in the grips of this self-love ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, this self-love by which we function, by which we operate. And when the law is brought home, it defines sin for us in that nature. Augustine, centuries ago, he illustrated this wonderfully. His autobiography confessions he penned. Near our vineyard, there was a pear tree loaded with fruit. Though the fruit was not particularly attractive, either in color or taste, I and some other youths conceived the idea of shaking the pears off this tree and carrying them away. We set out late at night and stole all the fruit that we could carry. This was not to feed ourselves. We may have tasted a few, but then we threw the rest to the pigs. Our real pleasure was simply in doing something that was not allowed. I had plenty of better pairs of my own. I only took these ones in order that I might be a thief. Once I had taken them, I threw them away. And all I tasted in them was my own iniquity, which I enjoyed very much. I enjoyed Law defines sin for us, that residing deep within each and every one of us is a spirit of idolatry. We are wired in an anti-God. Passion. You look at every sin. When it comes to every sin under the sun, every sin, you need to come at it from a couple of angles. In every sin, there is a superficial or surface, if you like, cause. Surface cause. And so lust causes what? It causes adultery, causes pornography, causes all sorts of other sins. Anger causes what? Verbal abuse, physical abuse. Envy causes what? Lashing out. Bitterness causes what? Living a life filled with self-pity. On and on and on it goes. You look at every sin, and there is always a surface cause. But we miss the mark entirely. We fail to recognize, if we fail to acknowledge, that in every sin, there is a deep underlying cause, a deep underlying motive. And here it is. Fire. Play. Fire, play, God. One preacher writes the following, At root, our sinful condition is the commitment to be our own God. Never lose sight of that. Our sinful condition is the commitment to be our own God. I will be God to me. That is, I will be the final authority in my life. I will decide what is right and wrong for me, what is good and bad for me, what is true and false for me, and my desires will express my sovereignty. My desires will express my autonomy. And though I would never say it, my desires will express my deity. That is the underlying root cause of every sin. Oh, when the law really comes alive. And we move beyond that superficial reading of the law. We enter into what is really being expressed there, beginning with the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. 
And we understand that covetousness resides in what? The fact that we have separated the creator from his creation. We have made this divide between the giver and his gifts. And we pursue things as if they were our ultimate end. And we turn them into little idols. And in so doing, what have we done? Go all the way back to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. We have committed the greatest sin of all, practicing openly, openly, blatantly idolatry. Oh, the Lord Jesus summed it up himself, didn't he? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. When we really get the law, I mean when the Spirit of God gives us eyes to see and we understand what is being expressed there, what exactly is being required of us and how far removed our hearts are from that requirement, then and only then do we begin to perceive the flaw. The law is not the problem. The law serves to show us our problem. The second truth is this. The law is not the solution, but prepares for solution. You see it right there in the picture behind me. There is that man, the law, sweeping the floor. All he serves to do is create this dust cloud. Yes, necessary. Yes, essential to bring the problem to attention. But he is put on the shelf when it comes to resolving the problem. He is asked to take a back seat when it comes to remedying the situation. Is this woman who enters with this water sprinkles the entire room with this water and having done so begins to clean it of this dust. It is the gospel. The law is not the solution to our problem. Law prepares us for the solution because it prepares us for the gospel. And so Paul says it, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous, and good. This is going to sound like an odd phrase, and I, I, I belabored whether or not to state it, but here we are, and here it goes. And I pray the Spirit of God gives us understanding. One of the greatest signs of life is feeling you're dead. Get it. One of the greatest signs of spiritual life, one of the greatest indicators, of spiritual life is feeling your dead. That is what the law does. Law kills us, finds our sin for us, reveals our sin to us, condemns us for our sin, thereby killing us, and in so doing makes way for life. Read in Isaiah 66 expresses it so well. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Why? Because it is when the law kills us, when we know we are dead, we run to the mercy of God. Grace, comfort. And that, my friends, means the law is holy and righteous and
It's an amazing thing when you sit back and you survey Scripture, and you survey its continuity, you survey its harmony, and you see how these two, this, 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 this call to duty as we find it in the law, and this call to, to penalty for having broken that law, how these two are reconciled in the Lord Jesus. And we run to the Lord Jesus when we feel dead. Why? Because in the Lord Jesus, we find one who has fulfilled the duty of the law. We find one who has fulfilled those Ten Commandments. We find one who has fulfilled and obeyed every commandment. We find one who has loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not only that, but we find one who has borne the penalty for us having broken that law. We find one who has borne the wrath of God. We find one who has satisfied the justice of God. And so feeling dead, we run to the mercy of God in Christ Jesus for grace and forgiveness and hope and comfort. Because we find in him the one who has fulfilled. What was the line? What was the phrase from that hymn which we sang at the outset? Christ has hushed the law's loud thunder. Is that true in your life? I mean, really, firstly, have you ever come to grips with your sin in the light of the law? Most people don't want to go there. They'd rather not admit there was a law because they don't want to face the fact that there is a judge. A law means there is a court. A court means there is a sentence of guilt and condemnation. The sentence of guilt and condemnation means there is an angry judge. People don't want to go down that road. Have to go down that road. You have to come to grips with the law and the holiness of God and the righteousness of God as revealed and expressed in the law. Having done so, the law serves a tremendous function. It points us away from it. it points us to the one who has fulfilled its duty, fulfilled its penalty. We might find the forgiveness sin, that we might find peace of conscience, that we might find the hope of eternal life. Our Father, we make it our prayer this Lord's day that you might take your word, law and gospel, and you might apply it wonderfully to the need of every man, woman, boy, and girl gathered here today. Pray this for the furtherance of your kingdom. Pray this for the glory of your name. Pray it for the glory of the Lord Jesus, the one who loved us, gave himself up for us, saved us. We ask it in his matchless and worth, worthy name. Amen.